0: The opportunity to take some time away from our typical sermon series and do these psalms. We call this series A Life of Worship. Some selected psalms, we've meditated on these. I hope this has been encouraging to you as well. Psalm 139 this morning. Have you ever had an experience where you, you know, your smartphone did something that made you feel like it knew just a little bit too much about you? You know, your whole, you, you are you are doing something. Maybe you're talking about a topic, and then you look down at your phone, and it has suggested that you purchase something related to that topic in which you were just talking. Or um, it's it's bizarre. There are all kinds of things that happen like that. So much so that there are whole discussions online where people talk with one another about: Are your smartphones listening to us? Are they listening to you? Are they are they spying on you? Um, how how are they using their microphones and such? And um, So much so that companies like Apple have actually introduced all these different features to let you know when the microphone is activated so you could tell if you're using a device or using an app where a microphone is activated and so on. But it is just kind of weird sometimes where you just feel like this phone knows way too much about me. Uh, That can be kind of scary. It's, It's not always nice to have that. But on the other hand, isn't it nice sometimes when you've had a rough day or when something's happened and you come home and your spouse has done something for you that only they know like, they, they can tell. They know so much about you that just by your look in your eye or whatever, they can tell you've had a rough day, and they do something that, that they know you would appreciate. And they're the only person in the world who would have picked up on that. They know a lot about you. That's a comforting thought. A lot of us have pursued our privacy in one degree or another. How does it make you feel that someone is watching you? You know, there's that old Santa Claus song, he, knows, he's, he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake. And as kids, you think that's kind of funny. As an adult, you think that's kind of creepy. (laughs) Um, How far will you go to secure your privacy? There are companies, and their whole goal in life, or their whole goal in, in existence is to give you security and privacy on the Internet. A lot of companies promote themselves this way, and this is a legitimate concern. The Internet has opened up all kinds of communications, But it seems to us that a lot of us are one click away or one exposure away from having our private information exposed for the whole world to be seen. But I have a word, uh, looking at the word of God this morning, we find something that that is important to understand, that the the idea of privacy, that that you have privacy, this whole concept of your privacy, I hate to break it to you, but it is a lie. You do not have privacy. It's something that Is not something that exists, as we see at the beginning of this passage of Scripture, that God has far more access to us and knows far more about us than anyone else. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. In this psalm, we see God's knowledge of us and we see our response to that. Would you bow with me in prayer as we bow in submission to him? Father, we ask this morning that you, as we open your word, that you allow us to open our hearts to you. That is, you know everything about us, I pray we would be submissive to you and that we would be truthful and honest before you. In Jesus' name, amen. The passage we have this morning, Psalm 139, all of the verses here are divided roughly into two sections. The title of the message simply is Worshiping the personal God, worshiping the personal God. And the first thing, the first section in the first 16 verses we see here simply I titled God's Position Toward Me. God's Position Toward Me. Would you look at the first six verses with me as we see simply that God knows me. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. God knows you. In fact, he knows everything about you. It says in verse 1, you have searched and known me. You are under the scrutiny of the Lord that God has searched out every recess of your heart, that God, the king of the universe who created all things, has taken a particular interest in the personal lives of people, specifically the personal lives of his children. God is involved in investigating us. He has invaded your personal space. He has invaded your privacy, and he desires to know you. And God doesn't do this because he's looking for answers. It's not like God is searching you because he's looking for something. It's not like he's lost something. In fact, God is probing you because he loves you. He is proving you. He is probing you, and he has every right to do this because he is our our maker. In fact, this word, you have searched me and known me, is the word know is a very intimate knowledge No, It's the same word that it says in the beginning where Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. It says, intimate knowledge of husband and wife is here. Use the same idea to communicate the knowledge, the intimate knowledge of God. You have searched me and known me. Verse 2, God knows everything about me and that he has occupied his thoughts with my trivial things. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. You know, I didn't pay attention to when any of you sat down. I didn't notice when I was busy walking around, all of you were kind of meandering about, and at some point you sat down, and I didn't notice, but God did. He knows when you sit down, and he knows when you get up. Can you think of anything more trivial than when you sat down and when you got up? It makes no difference to me when you sat down. As long as you're sitting down now, that's good. But, we, you know, it makes no difference to me, but God cares. God made a note, so to speak, of when you sat down, and he makes a note. When you stand up, God knows. You're sitting down, and you're rising up. He knows the most trivial things. You might think to yourself, God has better things to do than to bother himself with me. Why would God care? Why would that matter to him? Look at that second line of verse 2. He says, he understands my thoughts from afar. That God, although he is very close, he searches us and knows us. It says here he is the knowing God and that he knows from afar. Now, what does that mean? We know he's close. And what this word probably actually is indicating is that he knows my thoughts that are still in the future, my, not, my thoughts from afar, that those thoughts that are still out there, the hint of something that will, will happen. Now, God not only knows what you're thinking now, and he knows what you're doing now, he knows what you will do. He knows your thoughts from afar. Look at verses 3 and 4. It tells us that he will know everything about me, including what will happen to me. You comprehend my path. And my lying down, you are acquainted with all my ways. This path word is not the typical word for like a, a path or a walkway. It's actually the idea of a journey. You're journeying, you're wandering. It's like before, how, before we all had cell phones, how husbands would drive to vacation. You know, I think we're going this way. And wife says, wait, don't you want to stop and ask her? No, no, no. We're going somewhere that way. And we have to take a turn here and we're somehow get back over there. Why are we going this? No, I think it's that direction. And we just keep going. We'll get there eventually. Isn't that how a lot of us live our lives? we got, we got to wander. We, we don't exactly know where we're going. We think we do, and then God redirects, and we go this way and that way. We are wanderers, and, and we are journeying, and we are sojourners, the Bible calls us, sojourners in this world, like wanderers, like, like pilgrims walking through the land. And, and that's the picture, and God knows every little twist and turn, but he says he also knows you're lying down. I think, that, I think that's referring to when we are finished with this life and we die. God knows your wanderings. He knows your journey. He also knows the moment when you will cease from journeying and when you will lie down. And he knows that moment too. And you can't change that moment. God has that moment in the palm of his hand. God knows, comprehends my path and my lying down. He's acquainted with all my ways. There's the word we typically see for road or path or the ways of the man. You know, often in the book of Proverbs, this word is used. Derek is the word. And it means to the path. He knows all what will happen To me, he also knows in verse four what I'm going to say. Now, I don't even know what I'm going to say all the time. I mean, you ever gone to a situation you think I I don't know how I'm going to handle this? I don't know what I'm going to say. I've got to talk to somebody, and Lord, help me! I've got to come up with something here. So you you just open your mouth and you say, "Lord, please help me out here." God knows, even before I know what I'm going to say, God knows. It says, "There is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether." God knows what I'm going to say. God knows the embarrassing things we've said. God knows the unrighteous things we've said. God knows the encouraging things we've said. You could have encouraged a brother or sister in Christ this week, and nobody else knows it, but God does. You could have cursed under your breath. Nobody heard it, but God did. There's not a word on your tongue that God doesn't know. God knows everything about me. And I have to stop for a moment and ask you, how does this make you feel so far? Some of us, this idea that God knows everything about me makes us a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit like the idea that your cell phone knows all about you. And you're trying to think, how can I distance myself from this God? How can I not be so, be so wrapped up? And how can he not know this? But others of you, this is extremely comfortable to know that God knows all about you. Let's keep going. God not only knows everything about you, he cares deeply for you. Look with me in verse five and six. He says, you have hedged me behind and before And laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. What he's saying here with this first passage, verse 5, pay close attention to this because I think this will help a lot. He says, He has hedged me behind and before. This is the idea of being enclosed or restricted or or kept almost like a straitjacket. He has hedged us. He has provided areas. He has prevented us from doing some things. You know when you go bowling and you pull those bumpers out? Uh, some of you still do that. But for kids, normally, you're supposed to use them for children. You pull the bumpers out so it doesn't go in the gutter and you bowl. And, and this is the picture of God putting stuff around us, hedging us around and before. But even more so, it's all also the idea of enclosing us and tightening us. It's like, a, like, a, like a, something is wrapped around us and we're tighter and tighter. We are wrapped. We have limitations. But notice the next phrase, and you've laid your hand upon me. What's he talking about here? Some people say this is God's protection, and that, that might be the case, but I believe it makes much more sense in the context and in the way this is written that God is actually referring to his chastening hand. Let me explain. God has... Enclosed us, He has put pressure on us, and there are sometimes you feel restricted by God. And this word, "the hand of God is upon you," is actually throughout the Scripture. I can only find maybe two references where this phrase, the idea of the hand of God being on someone, was a positive thing. Almost every other aspect, every other reference to this, was a some sort of chastening, some sort of disciplinary action, some sort of judgment. Notice these verses, Exodus chapter sixteen, verse three. The children of Israel said to them. Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord. If you keep going, um, Deuteronomy chapter 2. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them. Keep going in Joshua chapter 22. This day we perceive the Lord is among us because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord. Now, therefore, you have delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. In the Old Testament, the phrase, the hand of the Lord, almost always has something to do, being upon someone, almost always has something to do with God's chastening and God's discipline. And God cares about you too much not to chasten you. God will chasten his children who run away from him and who walk away from him and who hide from him and who do not like the presence of God because like I'm saying, some of you, when I talk about the presence of God being there, you're all about it. You're so thankful for the presence of God as a comforting thought for others of us that scares us you know that somebody can see every thought we have and every emotion we have and every, every evil, wicked thought in our mind? God knows it. And every word on our tongue, God knows it. It makes you uncomfortable. God will not let go of you. He will chasten you. He will bring you back because you are, if you are saved, if you are a child of his, remember what's said in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. He says, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening, of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. It's just a logical argument that you don't go around disciplining all the kids in the neighborhood. You discipline your children. And God disciplines his Children, if you keep reading in verse ten, he says, "For they indeed, for a few days, chastened us as parents, as seemed best to them. But he, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful in the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it." You see, here God cares so much about you. He cares deeply for you. He wants you to be walking in fellowship with him. And if you run away from him, he will chasten you. And he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's, it's too hard to hold on to. It's too hard to grasp. The word wonderful means uh, it means be supernatural. It's high. I cannot attain it. As I mentioned, knowing that God is there might be a super comforting thought to some of you, but to some of you as well, it is a very, a very dangerous thought, a very Uh, a kind of thought that makes you want to run away. You are one who would want to fly away. And so that's why in verses 7 through 12, he reminds us that not only does God know you, God is with you. God is with you, and I cannot go anywhere to escape him. We started our scripture reading today in these verses. Why don't you read with me in verse 7? He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. The psalmist makes a rhetorical question. This is the question. Where can I go where God is not? And the answer is you cannot go anywhere where God is not. Everywhere you go, he is. Is it possible to get away from the God who created me? Can I hide from him? Where can I go? Where can I flee while well, he will not be present? He mentions extremes here. If I ascend into heaven, if I go all the way to heaven, if I, if I'm all the way in the sky and if I look around, can I escape God there? No, he's there. This reminds us of Genesis chapter 11 and the fact that the people built the Tower of Babel to try to attain to God. They tried to reach God thinking that they could get to him physically mounting a, a, a gigantic temple up to the heavens. And, and he says, he says, can I, do, can I do that to escape God? The answer is no. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. Hell, which is the grave, the pit, the, the very center of the earth. I cannot climb to God to escape God or to reach God. I cannot dig to escape God. Think of what Jonah did in Jonah when he, he, he the prophet, was thrown overboard and, and, and sank to the bottom of the ocean. And he describes the, the bars of death and hell surrounding him and, and, and surrounding him, uh, and he dies essentially there at the grave at the very bottom of the ocean. Jonah is one who goes down deep, but is God there? Absolutely. You can't go high enough. You can't go low enough. You cannot do anything, or you cannot go anywhere to escape God. And you cannot do anything to escape God. Look at the next two verses. I, I love verse 9 because of the picture it has. It says this If I take the wings of the morning, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Uh, I've described this a couple times, so forgive me if this is familiar territory, but uh, you know, the word wings has a lot to do with speed in the Bible, and And the picture here is a pretty remarkable one. It's that David is standing there and he's looking out and to him, the Mediterranean Sea is to the west. And as he's writing this psalm, he looks and he sees the morning dawn, the sunlight come above the hills to the east. And he says, even if I were to see those first rays of sunlight as they come up, and as soon as the sun peaks above the mountains, immediately those rays of light have already reached the uttermost parts of the sea. They've already zoomed across at the speed of light to the other end. You could not track them as they go. They are so fast. He's saying, if I could mount these wings of the morning and go from east to west and go all the way to the uttermost parts of the sea where the water, I cannot even see any land over there. It's just the rays of sunlight go. Even if I could go all the way over there, he says, if I could go that fast, even there God will be with you. You cannot go away. You cannot escape this God who is with you. Even there, his hand will lead me. His right hand shall hold me. You can't do anything to escape God. Speaking of light, he then goes to speaking of darkness in verse 11. He said, if I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me. Even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. He says, what if I find the darkest of darkest places? And if I hide in the darkest spot, if I find the darkest place in the darkest location in the darkest house and I crawl in that dark location so much so that my eyes get adjusted to it so that that darkness is like light to me. You know, we've all I have kids and they come to me and they say, Dad, I'm scared of the dark. And I always say, go back to your room. Your eyes will get used to it. I don't, you've done that too, right? You've all done that, okay. I'm not a terrible dad, I don't think. Okay, so I say, go back. Go back to your room. You'll be fine. Just just let your eyes get adjusted. And eventually, it does. Eventually, they can see in the dark. And he's like, you know, even if I got in the darkest of dark places so that even that darkness was light to me, that became my normal. Verse 12, indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day. Darkness and the light are both alike. In verse 12, he says, indeed, the darkness, I prefer a more literal translation here, which says the darkness is not dark to you. It's dark to us, but God doesn't see darkness and light like we see darkness and light. Darkness does not intimidate God. We can't hide in a corner, and God's like, where did he go? He knows where we are. There are limitations we have to see, but even the darkness cannot hide me from God because the dark and the light make no difference to God. He can see just as easily in the darkness as he can see in the light because the night shines as the day to God. Do you not remember that he is the one who separated the night from the day? He is the one who separated the light from the darkness. God's the one who made the light. David then thinks of an example of God seeing in the darkest, deepest, most secretive place that he could think of. A place where no eye has ever gone. And he turns To the womb of a mother. Look with me in verse 13 and 16. We say, Not only does he know me, not only is he with me, but he is the one who made me. You formed me, my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. He is the creator God who knew me before anyone else had seen me. And he was doing the work of bringing about a baby. In the womb, God sees in the dark and mysterious places, and He's the one who weaves me, who knits me, who covers me, that word in my mother's womb. He is the one who puts me together piece by piece, molecule by molecule. God makes a baby. And there in that place where none of us can see God is the one who's forming our inward parts, before we were even yet able to see or breathe or hear or smell, God was forming you in the darkest of dark places. And my response in verse 14 is, I will praise you. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows well. My frame was not hidden from you as I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. He says, praise because I've been made fearfully and wonderfully. It's a miraculous thing. Every baby that is born is a miraculous thing. That word marvelous just is the same root as wonderful. It means something that is supernatural that's going on in the womb when a child is born. And he says he knows that very well. I mean, we've had four and it is amazing. Like the week before the baby's born, you know, we, you look at the the stomach and there's the bulge and then there's the, you can sometimes see like a foot or a hand. Um, and you can see sometimes there's movement, and it's kind of strange. It, we would laugh, like, it looks like an alien. That's what we'd always say. It looks like an alien you know, moving around in there, and it is just bizarre. You don't know what that baby's going to look like. You don't know what color hair he or she has. You don't, you, there, there are so many things you don't know, but then, bam, all of a sudden, the baby's out and in, in the real world, and, and you're looking at that baby who was right there. It is a mysterious and beautiful thing. It is an amazing thing. But, but the, when you're looking at that baby, God has been looking at that baby for a long time. And we, we tend to, to take away the, the beauty of what's happening in the womb because now we can do ultrasounds and we know what's going to happen when the baby comes out, whether it's a boy or a girl. And we have all of those, um, all, those all that knowledge. But when, but when you step back and think of the beauty and, the, and the, just the majesty of what God is doing in these, in these very private moments of, of God putting together that baby, the fact that he has made me in my womb should settle the issue of abortion for every Christian in this room, or really every Christian in the world. The fact that Christians can see verses like this and know that God is the one making and knitting together these little babies and there is so much disregard for human life. Is it any wonder that the world who hates God will do everything they can to attack God, to attack his creation at what shows the glory of God, which is in these smallest moments. Yes, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork, but you know where else his handiwork is in? These little babies and these mothers' wombs. God, God is a beautiful God who's done wonderful things. He has made us fearfully and wonderfully. Some of you might say, well, I don't like the way I'm made. I, I, I'm not pretty enough or I'm not strong enough or I'm not tall enough or I, I have a, a defect here or I have a defect there. Or I, you know, I have a problem with this or a problem with that or I, I was born with this kind of disease or that kind of disease. And, and God says, I have made you fearfully and wonderfully. And you want to thank the Lord for the blessing of being born and being framed by him. In verse 15, he says, the frame was made in secret from people But he has still skillfully wrought us. He has skillfully fashioned us in the most secret place, the womb. And this psalm is just one large prayer to God. And the first section has all been about God's position towards me. It's what God has done towards me, who God is to me. And now it takes a turn. And he starts looking at us and he says, okay, now we know God's position towards me. Why don't we now look at what is my position toward God? How do I respond to this great a magnificent God, the one who creates me, who knows me, who's up close and personal with me, who has searched me and known me. First, we see that because of this, I must treasure the thoughts of God. Verse 17 says, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. Now, that's a that's a little bit of a paradox there, because because God's preciousness of his thoughts. His thoughts are precious to me. They are valuable to me. But isn't it usually the case that when something is plentiful, it's not worth much? Like, like Things that are, you can find everywhere, nobody cares to pay money for. I didn't understand this when I was a kid. We used to try to sell rocks on the side of the road. <laughs> Mom, we're going to make a lot of money. We're going to charge $100 a rock. She says, it, it doesn't matter. Nobody's going to buy that. Well, if we just get one person to buy it, Nobody's going to buy a rock they can pick up off the side of the road. Plentiful things normally are worthless. But he says, your thoughts to me are very valuable, and there's a lot of them. The, the fact that there are so many of them, in fact, is what makes them so valuable to me. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. I would be honest with you. I struggled with verse 18, knowing exactly what that connection is between those two phrases, between the first line. And the second line, what is he saying here about if I'm counting them, there'll be more in number than the sand. And when I am awake, I'm still, what, what is happening here? And then it just, again, this is some, some, I like to tell you when I'm doing a little bit of like, because uh, this is my idea versus what's in the scripture. Okay, so this is kind of my idea here versus what's explicitly in the scripture. I kind of think that, Paul, that, uh, that David here is, is, is sitting there on his bed, having a hard time sleeping because he's full of anxiety. And in this anxiety, in this anxiousness, he, he starts thinking, instead of counting sheep, maybe he's counting the promises of God. And, he, and he's counting, recounting God's thoughts towards me. God's promises towards me. And, and, he, and he says, I know that if I start doing this, I can't run out. So that's what I need to do. Start, start talking about, thinking about, meditating on God's, God's thoughts towards me. And they're more in number than the sand. That's why he says, when I awake, I am still with you. And then he wakes up and he's fallen asleep, and he wakes up, and he's still thinking about God. He can't stop thinking about God's thoughts towards him. You need to treasure the thoughts of God. And where do you find the thoughts of God? Well, they're in your Bible, my friend. They're in your Bible. And and how do you know if you treasure the thoughts of God? Well, how often do you pick up your Bible and let God speak to you his thoughts? Do you spend time with God? If you don't, you're not treasuring the thoughts of God. They're not valuable to you. Secondly, we see that God I must give my allegiance to God. I must, I must be submissive to his strength and power to overcome those who are wicked. Look at verse 19. He says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do not I loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them as my enemies. He says in verse 19, I want to get away from these wicked people. Lord, slay the wicked. He's declaring his allegiance to God, and he will reject those who oppose God. Speaking of those wicked and bloodthirsty men, he actually speaks to them directly. This is one of the only places in the entire psalm where he speaks to someone other than God. And he says, depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. He identifies their character of being bloodthirsty. their a desire of spilling blood. He says, I don't want anything to do with you. Some of the traits of the wicked in verse 20. He says they speak against the Lord with wicked language. They take the name of the Lord in vain. That's another character trait of them. And there's a simple thought in verse 21 and 22 that if you love God, you cannot love those who hate God. He says you cannot love those, you cannot be riding the fence. You will either love the Lord or you will oppose the Lord. In fact, you will oppose, the word is here in the Bible is hate, those who rise up against the Lord and hate God. There is no middle ground. You must oppose those who oppose him. So the psalmist is saying, Lord, I'm on your side. Lord, I, I, am, I am allegiant to you. I will not be giving allegiance to those who hate you because I cannot be swept up in those who rise up against you. Amos 3.3 says, can two walk together unless they be agreed? The answer obviously is no. We must align ourselves have allegiance to God. But this last part is where I want us to focus for a moment because this may be the most important part of the entire psalm. As he comes to the end here, he says, lastly, that I must submit to God's evaluation of my life. Part of my position towards God, the God who created me and loves me, is that I need to submit to him evaluating me. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. The God, you may have missed this. Look back at verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now look at verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. He already knows. He already has searched. So what is happening here is the psalmist is saying, I am submissive to you. I'm opening up my heart. I am being vulnerable with you, Lord. I know you know me, but now I'm submitting to you. I know you know what's there. You can't hide from God. If I send to heaven, you're there. If I send to hell, you're there. If I go everywhere, you're there. I know that. Now I'm submitting to you. I'm opening up my heart to you. What does he ask God to know? three things. First, he said, Lord, I want you to know my heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. The heart is the innermost part of a person. It's, Lord, know my motives. Are you willing to ask God to know your motives? Are you willing to open your motives up? to So we do a lot of good things for the wrong reasons. I I tell you, you want to be... um, convicted by God as you start asking God to show you your motives for some of the good things you've done. And it's humbling to see so many times good deeds, wrong motives. Lord, see my heart. The heart is the seat of emotions. It's the seat of motivation. He's saying, Lord, I give you permission to go places I won't let anybody else go. Away goes the pretense. Away goes the defensiveness. Away go my justifications, openness, and honesty before God. And I think this is one of the things that's standing in the way from a lot of us growing like we ought to grow. As we play church, we play Christian, and we're not willing to get open and honest before God and expose the soft spots of our heart because we're afraid of what that might mean for us. And God says we ought to say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. He already knows. We're being submissive to him. Says is especially difficult for men because men tend to be very protective and very defensive. We don't like to be open. We need to peel back the the layers of our heart and say, Lord, search me and know me. I'm taking off the armor. I'm submitting myself to you. He already knows. Why are we hiding? Secondly, he says, know my thoughts, or are like our translation here, our anxieties. Search me. Know my heart. Try me. Know my anxieties. Sometimes we're not even aware of the hidden anxieties, the hidden fears that are controlling us. As we think in our hearts, so we are. Whatever we do comes from within, and very often God knows, or I should say always, God knows your anxieties more than you know them. And sometimes, I can't tell you how many times we've been sitting in an office sitting in a counseling session, talking casually with someone over lunch, whatever the case might be, and we're talking about these things, and and, and people say, I don't know why I have this sin problem. I don't know why I have this sin issue. I have this this problem that persists. I don't have this besetting sin, or I have this issue that, that controls my life. I don't know why it is. And very often, if you dig deep into your heart, and you allow God to see your heart, and you open up your heart, you'll find there are fears and anxieties that are driving sin decisions. There are often fears and anxieties that drive our sin habits. Search me, O oh God. Know my heart. Try me. Show me my anxieties so that I can put them at the, at the foot of the cross and submit them all to you. We need to be willing to do that. Who knows your anxieties better than the God who formed you in your mother's womb? Who better to open up and diagnose your heart than the God who loves you? And lastly, he says, see if there be any wicked way in me. God not only wants to work on your heart, he wants to work on your actions too. He wants to, to have you evaluate your decisions and your behaviors. It's not just about your inner man, it's also about your behaviors. There is a, it is possible to do the wrong thing. I, I hate to have to say that, but in our culture today, people tend to downplay sin. It is, it is, their sin is real, and many people are deceived about what sin is. And we should come before God and say, Lord, Is there any wicked way in me? Show me what... Now, the question is, are you willing to hear the answer? If God says, this is wicked, are you willing to say, okay, it's yours? Because the truth is, so many of us have guarded our hearts, we have protected ourselves, and we have sectioned off little fortresses in our life that God is not allowed in. And we say, you're not allowed to go there, you're not allowed to go here, you can have this region right here where God says, I want all of it. You open up the doors, you say, Lord, search me. Know my heart, know my anxieties, know my ways, and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way that's everlasting. Lead me in the way that's connected with righteous, everlasting life. Now, I hope you've seen the way this psalm is laid out in two big sections. The first section simply is that God knows you, he is with you, and he made you. God's relationship to me. And because we have that kind of God we serve, because he knows you, because he made you, and because he is with you, you must treasure his thoughts. You must give your allegiance to God, and you must submit to God's evaluation of of your life. Friend, if you find that God is showing you wicked ways, you're scared of what that might mean, I beg you to go to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which tells us that we can confess our sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But all this is only possible because of the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross anyway. You, you would have no standing before God. You would not treasure God's thoughts. You would not be giving your allegiance to God. You would not be submitting to God's evaluation in your life. If Christ if you do not trust Christ as your Savior. That's the most important thing. You can do all these things. You can act the act. You can walk walk and and do all these things, but unless you have trusted Christ as your Savior, none of this matters. You must have a good relationship with God. You must have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, which comes through faith. Today, I beg of you, we're going to have a moment of quiet in just a minute, and I ask you, as the Lord has spoken through this passage, I, I have been convicted this week so many times through this passage. I know that God's word is powerful, it's quicker and sharper than any two edged sword. I'm going to challenge you this morning as we close our eyes in just a moment, as we sing in just a moment. Would you be willing to ask God to evaluate your heart in these things? Or are you too proud? Are you too are you too unwilling to let God work? Or would you open up your heart and say, Lord, search me and know me? You already has. He already does. Be submissive in this and allow him to transform you into the image of his son. Lord, we thank you for this time we've had.